going to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Konnichiwa and welcome friends and enemies, welcome to another episode of Exploring Evil where we cover stories of the wicked, the deranged, and the depraved. If you like the show, please give us a 5 star rating and write a review. Don't forget to tell all of your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil. You can email questions, comments, and case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. If you send an email, you might get a shout out. I also want to remind you guys and gals about my other podcast, Cryptique. My co-host Ryan and I discuss the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and fringe science, and sometimes folklore. You can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. Tonight's case was suggested by Erica Kay from Spokane. And if there's any place that knows about serial killers, it's Spokane. Thanks for the suggestion, Erica. A quick warning, tonight's show is explicit and disturbing. You shouldn't have kids listening to the show anyway, but this case involves multiple child murders, rape, mutilation, cannibalism, and necrophilia, so you've been warned. This case takes place in Japan, so I apologize for any mispronunciations in advance. Aruma Village Apartment Complex, 3 p.m., August, 1988. A sweet four-year-old girl skips carelessly down the street. Marie Kono is going to visit her friend at her house. She's probably planning on doing what most kids do, maybe watching some cartoons or anime, as they say. Her quiet village apartment complex is considered safe. But is any place really safe anymore? 6.30 p.m. Mari should be home by now, and anxiety sets in as her parents begin to worry. Her father feels sick to his stomach and calls police to report her missing. But the girl is already 30 miles away, with her captor being strangled to death. The man coerced her into his car when she was on her way to her friend's house. Would you like to go somewhere cool, he says. Within seconds, the girl is in his car, and it's already too late. This is the case of Sutomu Miyazaki, and this is Exploring Evil. Japan is a place steeped in tradition. On one hand, its tranquil and epic beauty make it a destination for world travelers. On the other hand, it's futuristic and crowded. It's got exotic cuisine, beaches, and lush forests. It's kind of a beautiful dichotomy with something for everyone. Open any history book and you'll see it's also had its dark times. In 1988, it saw one of the world's most depraved serial killers hunting for children in the land of the rising sun. Sutomo Miyazaki's life began in Tokyo on August 21, 1962, where he was prematurely born. He weighed less than five pounds, and the joints in his hands were fused together with his wrists, making it impossible for him to bend his wrists upwards. It forced him to move his entire forearm in order to rotate the hand, but it wouldn't stop him from driving or strangling. This deformity haunted him from early on. When he was five years old, a classmate teased him about his funny hands. It caused him to withdraw from his schoolmates. Because of his deformity, his elementary school classmates shunned him. By the time he reached elementary school, Miyazaki was almost invisible. He kept to himself and began to read manga or graphic novels obsessively. In family photos, Miyazaki never showed his hands, and his eyes were often closed. Satomu was undoubtedly a clever child, but he'd become locked in his own isolated world. He studied hard and became the first student from his junior high school to pass the entrance exam to Medi Nakano High School. 
but he is remembered little by teachers and classmates. Of what they do recall, Satomu was described as a quiet, lonely child who seemed incapable of making friends. Satomu, like any other boy, did have dreams. In the third grade, he wrote an essay. When I grow up, I want to buy a car and go driving. I'll stop at a restaurant and eat some curry rice or something. I might even visit my relatives. More often than not, however, he increasingly blamed his deformed hands for his inability to achieve anything concrete. Instead of joining his fellow students, Miyazaki would retreat to a desolate corner to work on another hand-drawn comic book. He chose to stay up late into the night reading manga. He commuted two hours each way to school, every day for three years, but eventually began to lose interest in his studies. Although he was originally a star student, his grades in high school dropped dramatically. His plans to enter university, major in English, and become a teacher was over by his final year. His dream was crushed. He ended up 40th in a class of 56, with grades so poor that he failed to receive a recommendation to university. Naturally, he blamed his handicap. Instead of studying English and becoming a teacher, as he originally intended, he attended a local junior college and studied to become a photo technician. By the spring of 1983, he went to work at a printing plant owned by a friend of his father's. After three years, during which he saved more than 3 million yen, about $27,000, equivalent to $62,000 today, he moved back home with his family. He shared a two-room bungalow off the main house near his father's printing business with one of his sisters. Known around town for his unfailing courtesy, Katsumo Miyazaki owned the Akikawa Shimbun, a major local newspaper in the area, at Tokyo's most inland point. There, the Miyazaki family had considerable political influence. As a boy, Satomu made no close friends and therefore gained no information about sex in the real world. By 1984, Satomu had moved on from anime and manga to child pornography and reportedly collected thousands of videos. Apparently, he was also influenced by horror films, especially the series of guinea pig films, and there is speculation that the second one in that series became a model for one of his murders. His family had little influence over Satomu. His workaholic father was more interested in collecting political video clips and the latest cameras, and his mother also worked but tried to compensate by buying Satomu gifts such as the Nissan Langley that he used to abduct some of his victims. Miyazaki's two younger sisters found him repulsive. Once, when his youngest sister yelled at him for peeking at her in the bath, he burst in and smashed her head against the bathtub. Later, when his mother suggested he spend more time at work and less with his videos, Miyazaki exploded and beat her up. Miyazaki's father had long since given up on him. Miyazaki avoided women his own age, perhaps because he was physically immature. But a high school classmate remarked on his high sex drive and said that it was stronger than average. At college, he took his still and video cameras to the tennis courts to take crotch shots of female players. He also soon tired of adult porn magazines. They black out the most important part, he complained. Only his grandfather, Shokichi, a well-regarded man who had served on the city council, seemed to take a genuine interest in the boy. His grandfather's demise also aided in Miyazaki's estrangement from his family. His trigger seems to have been the death of his grandfather in May 1988, just three months before the first murder. His grandfather had been his only warm adult relationship, and his death marked the breaking point of Miyazaki's last ties with normal society. Miyazaki later said that he even ate some of his grandfather's cremated bones, a claim that Shinsuke Shirazawa, a literary critic and witness for Miyazaki's defense, believes. 
He wanted to reincarnate his grandfather and believed that his reincarnation would not be complete if any of his grandfather's body remained, Sirizawa said. How then did Miyazaki's unnatural vices lead him to kill? As Professor Ishii at Aoyama Gakken University pointed out, people grow up in similar environments yet never become murderers. Little girls started to go missing in 1988. But first, let's take a quick commercial break. Hey, Exploring Evil fans, I hope you're enjoying the show. This one is about to get dark. Speaking of dark, I want to tell you about my new podcast. It's called Cryptique, and it usually finds a way to creep into the shadows of your imagination. It's not serial killer dark, but my co-host Ryan and I discuss the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and folklore that just might be true. We just did a show on the Mexican demon named El Cacui, and you'll get to hear a harrowing story of one family's encounter and survival of an attack. You can find Cryptique everywhere you find Exploring Evil, so check it out tonight. Shortly after 3 p.m. on August 22, 1988, four-year-old Marie Kono left her home in the Aruma Village apartment complex to play at her friends. It's easy to remember the excitement one felt as a child seeking out new adventures on a daily basis. But around 6.30, just before sunset, she failed to return, and her father, architect Shigeo Kono, called the police to report that his daughter was missing. But it was already too late. In a faraway dark forest, Mari was being slowly strangled to death by a burgeoning madman who treated people like objects for his own satisfaction. As Mari made her way through the complex earlier that afternoon, a Nissan Langley sedan pulled up nearby and a man-child slid out of the driver's seat. Would you like to go somewhere cool, he asked. Mari nodded and taking his hand skipped towards the car. It should probably be noted that in Japan, more so than in America, children are taught to respect and trust their elders, which can be a wonderful thing. But it worked against Mari on that fateful day. And an innocent little girl would have no way of distinguishing a child predator from a human being. Mari toggled and turned the switches and buttons on the car's radio as the Langley sedan cruised down the highway. An hour and a half later, the Nissan skidded to a stop on a lonely, deserted dirt road near a hiking trail by a power station. Mari was taken by her hand and led down a lightly traveled hiking path bordered by cypress and cedar trees at Komini Pass. She thought they were going on an adventure and had no idea that she was in the hands of a ghoul. Insects were buzzing incessantly, droning out a hypnotic sound. After about a half hour of walking, the pair sat down to rest about 60 feet off the trail. Mari began to sniffle, and Sutomu began to panic, fearing what would happen if she began to cry. What if hikers heard her weeping? That's when his perverted intentions became clear. He coiled his hands around the child's throat and began to squeeze like a python, crushing the breath out of its prey. Her body soon went limp, but imagine the four to five minutes needed to strangle a person. He had killed his first victim, but instead of feeling empathy or disgust, he was exhilarated. He quickly undressed her with his deformed hands and sexually assaulted the dead four-year-old. He laid her out to make it look like she was just sleeping. He rolled up her clothes, panties, and shoes and hiked back out of the forest. And now, a monster with a thirst for little girls was on the loose. 
A few days after Mari disappeared, Mari's mother received a postcard with a haunting message after she had expressed hope in a news bulletin that her daughter was still alive. There are devils about, it read. The local police dismissed the note as a cruel prank. Sutomo allowed the corpse of Mari Kono to decompose in the hills for a few weeks. Then he chopped off the hands and feet, which he kept in his closet. He cremated the remaining bones in his furnace, ground them into a powder, and sent them to her family in a box. Along with several of her teeth, photos of her clothes, and a postcard reading, Mari, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. It wasn't enough for him to take the most important part of the Kono family. He had to torment them as well. Following this was a confession that Mari had been murdered. After her disappearance, police squad cars with loudspeakers patrolled the streets, warning parents to keep their children in sight at all times. Although it was officially tagged as a missing persons case, the police started the investigation as a murder right from the beginning. Eventually, the police spent 2,930 man days interviewing people around Mari's home. That's the equivalent of almost 100 men spending every day for an entire month looking for Mari. They also sent 50,000 posters with Mari's picture to beat cops, train, subway, and bus stations across the nation. But the search was in vain. Nothing came of these efforts. Not even police dogs could pick up the girl's scent. Two boys said they had seen Mari walking behind a man toward the nearby Aruna River. A 38-year-old housewife had spotted Mari with a stranger. Apart from the age, her description was accurate. Late 30s, about 5 feet 6 inches tall, round and pudgy face with curly hair, white slacks, and a white summer sweater. The fruitless hunt for Mari Kono eventually dwindled after four weeks. In September, Mari's kindergarten began its new term without her. Since the police had received no demands from a kidnapper and found no body, her file, categorized under missing persons, lay dormant. But many parents in the area were taking no risks. From the time Mari disappeared until Miyazaki was caught, Parents led their children to kindergarten every day, recalled one mother. Six weeks later, Miyazaki again went on the prowl. October 3, 1988, the Tokyo ghoul noticed a first grader named Masami Yoshizawa walking along the road. He somehow politely convinced the little girl to get into his car and was soon back at Komini Pass with the same evil intentions. Staying on script, he used his deformed hands to strangle the girl to death. It's hard to imagine what would go on in a child's mind as she looked into the eyes of a madman squeezing the life out of her. Again, it would take four to five minutes for her to pass away. He removed the dead girl's clothing and sexually assaulted the corpse. Masami's body quivered, a phenomenon known as cadaveric spasm, and Satomu was startled and ran back to his car. He left Masami's dead body just 300 feet away from the decaying corpse of Marikono. Masami was reported missing and search parties spread out across the local area but found nothing not a single clue as to her whereabouts. Hundreds of missing person flyers were hung by police, and it's reported that they spent 2,300 man days interviewing local residents, but to no avail. Masami's home was only eight miles from Mari's. The police suspected the two cases may be related, but had no leads, and Masami was declared a missing person. On September 6th, Masami Yoshizawa's remains were found in the forest near Komini Pass. The half-chewed bones of Marikono's hands and feet were discovered nearby a week later. 
December 12, 1988, Erica Namba was lured into Miyazaki's Nissan Langley. She was already crying by the time he pulled into the parking area at the Youth Nature House in Niguri. He yelled at Erica to undress in the back seat, then began to photograph her. The strobe was flashing in the dark. A car drove by. Its headlights swept across Miyazaki's face. Erika began sobbing again. Miyazaki grabbed her by the throat and straddled her, holding her kicking body down with his weight as he strangled her. By 7 p.m., his third victim was dead. Miyazaki quickly wrapped her body in a white sheet and put it in his trunk like it was a piece of garbage. He then haphazardly threw her clothes in the woods behind the parking area and drove off. Miyazaki's mind clearly wasn't on the road. As he turned a corner, one of the Langley's front wheels slipped into a rut off the road, and the car was stuck. He flicked on the hazard lights and disappeared into the dark woods with the wrapped-up corpse in his arms. He returned with the sheet to find two men standing by his car. Casually opening the trunk to put the sheet away, he explained his problem to the men, who then helped lift his car out of the rut. Miyazaki got in, and without so much as a thank you, sped away. This time, the police immediately connected Erika Namba's disappearance with that of Marikono and Masami Yoshizawa, and the Saitama Prefectural Office set up a special operations center to solve the three missing persons cases. And less than a week later, after his daughter's murder, Shinichi Namba, like the Konos, received a postcard. It was formed from kanji characters cut from magazines and newspapers, then photocopied and enlarged to conceal their origin. It read, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. The next day, a worker at the Naguri Youth Nature House found some of Erica's clothes, and hundreds of police began combing the area. Meanwhile, the PTA at Erica's kindergarten pasted flyers around the apartment complex where the Namba family lived. The two men who had helped Miyazaki with his car on the night of the murder came forward to identify it. They correctly recalled that the car had Hachioji plates, but misidentified the model as a Toyota Corolla II, an error the police realized only after they had checked out more than 6,000 Corolla IIs. This blunder deprived investigators of what could have been their strongest lead. Seen in the macabre light of the recovery of Erika's body, the disappearance of Mari and Masami pointed strongly toward a more serious crime. A serial child killer. All the girls lived within 20 miles of each other. As soon as they found the body of the third girl, they began to treat it as a serial murder case, said a police journalist. Miyazaki would not kill again until the following summer, but he was still busy. At about 6 a.m., on his way to work on February 6th, Shigeo Kono, Mari's father, found a box on his doorstep and called the police. Along with ashes, dirt, fragments of charred bones, and ten baby teeth, it also contained photos of the child's shorts, underwear, and sandals, and a single sheet of copier paper with five words on it. Mari. Bones. Cremated. Investigate. Prove. Miyazaki had returned to the death site, as he had done several times, and removed the remains. The ten small teeth found among the ashes were immediately turned over to the legal division of the Tokyo Dental University for examination, where Dr. Kazu Suzuki concluded they probably did not belong to Mari. After a police press conference announced this finding, Suzuki changed his mind to the agony of the Kono family. His examination was mistaken, he said. The remains might be Mari's after all. Then, a police forensic expert gave his verdict on the half pound of bone fragments. They were not only human, they were Mari Konos. 
Miyazaki, avidly following news reports, heard only the original verdict that the teeth were not Mari's and immediately sat down to write. On February 11th, a three-page letter arrived at the Kono home. The society desk of the Asahi Shimbun also received a copy, along with a Polaroid-type photo of Mari. The letter was entitled Crime Confession. I put the cardboard box with Mari's remains in it in front of her home, it began. I did everything, from the start of the Mari incident to the finish. I saw the police press conference where they said the remains were not Mari's. On camera, her mother said the report gave her new hope that Mari might still be alive. I knew then that I had to write this confession, so Mari's mother would not continue to hope in vain. I say again, the remains are Mari's. What a nice guy. He didn't want Mari's mother to suffer anymore. The confession caused an uproar. The next day, the Saitama police finally classified the Mari Kono case as a homicide and set up a special center to investigate her abduction and murder. Handwriting experts examined the confession note but could not establish the author's sex, but it was signed with a female name. It was an obvious attempt to again cover up Miyazaki's identity. It's not impossible that a female killer would have committed these atrocious acts, but the police deemed it unlikely. A fact that has been proven throughout history that crimes of this nature are almost committed exclusively by men. Over a half million police leaflets quoting the confession were delivered to houses in the area where the girls lived. The police did, however, correctly identify the snapshot of Mari as one taken with a Mamiya 6x7 camera, like those used by printers. They also concluded that the box was the double-walled, corrugated kind often used to ship camera lenses. The typeface on the postcards was determined to have come from a photo typesetter and copied on an industrial copier. Police later refused to comment on whether or not they launched an investigation of printing shops in the area. The Konos waited an agonizing three weeks before the police officially announced that the box contained the remains of their daughter. The box contained almost an entire skeleton of a four- or five-year-old girl, and two of the teeth matched perfectly with x-rays of her dental work. On March 11, 1989, over seven months after she was declared missing, Mari was laid to rest. Her hands and feet didn't seem to be with the remains, said Shigeo Kono at the funeral. When she gets to heaven, she won't be able to walk or eat. Please return the rest of her remains. The nightmare wasn't over. The Konos returned home from the funeral to find another letter. This one, labeled simply Confession, chronicled the changes Miyazaki had observed in Mari's dead body. Before I knew it, the child's corpse had gone rigid, he said in the letter. I wanted to cross her hands over her breast, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty soon, the body gets red spots all over it, big red spots. After a while, the body is covered with stretch marks. It was so rigid before, but now it feels like it's full of water and it smells. How it smells, like nothing you've ever smelled in this whole wide world. In spite of hints offered by the letters signed by the female pseudonym Yuko Imada, a pun meaning now I'll tell, the police were unable to pick up Miyazaki's trail. Some observers have interpreted the letters as Miyazaki's gloating at the society that he felt had shunned him. On June 6, 1989, Miyazaki left his bungalow for tennis courts near Tokyo Bay, but the courts were closed. Close by in a park, he found five-year-old Ayako Nomoto playing alone. Miyazaki approached Ayako and asked her to pose for pictures. He then took several shots until Ayako got used to him. Let's take some shots inside the car, he persuaded her leading her to his sedan. Miyazaki parked just a half mile away as Ayoko bounced in the back seat. He handed her a stick of gum and the young girl innocently commented on his deformed hands. 
Enraged, Miyazaki put on a pair of vinyl gloves. Here's what happens to kids who say things like that, he snarled, grabbing her by the throat. She kicked and kicked, but went limp in four or five minutes, he later confessed. To make sure she was dead, he taped her mouth and tied her hands with vinyl rope. He then wrapped the body in a sheet and put it in the trunk of his car. There were no lights on in the house when he parked next to his two-room bungalow. He waited a couple of hours, then carried the tiny girl's body inside, stripped off the clothes, and wiped it down with a towel. He laid it on the low-sitting table, spread the girl's legs, and taped the vagina apart. He then took photographs and videos while he masturbated. Afterwards, he bound the hands and feet again with nylon cord and covered the body with three sheets. The odor of the decomposing corpse was soon unbearable. Although he was right in believing the police were nowhere near identifying him as the little girl murderer, Miyazaki knew he had to dispose of the body. With a knife and saw, he hacked off the cadaver's head, hands, and feet to hamper identification. Then he hid the torso near the public bathroom at a local cemetery at midnight, four days after the murder. He roasted Ayako's hands in his backyard, ate some of her flesh, and tossed what remained, including the skull, into the woods of Mitakayama, a 750-foot hill in the front of his house. He grew uneasy with having the remains outside his house, so he retrieved them and hid them two weeks later in a bag in the storeroom behind his bedroom, where he felt they were more secure. Later, he scattered the bones in the woods, then burned the hair, the clothes, and the blood-stained plastic bags and sheets. Five days later, after police had distributed 10,000 flyers with Ayako's description and picture, the little girl's mutilated torso was discovered at the cemetery. Despite Miyazaki's butchery, the remains were quickly identified. The blood type and chest size matched with those of Ayako Nomoto, reported missing by her mother at 8.40 p.m. on June 6th. The stomach contents matched Ayako's last meal. In 1989, Miyazaki, while attempting to insert a zoom lens into the vagina of a grade school-aged girl in a park near her home, was attacked by the girl's father. Miyazaki fled on foot, but returned to the park to retrieve his car, whereupon he was promptly arrested. The police immediately believed they had found their serial killer. One Saitama housewife remembers how house-to-house -house police questioning in her apartment complex ended abruptly on the day the news broke, though nothing was officially revealed of the suspect's involvement in the other crimes. Even then, television reports were saying he was the killer, she recalled. The news media were so convinced that Miyazaki was the man that they beat the police to the Miyazaki home, where they filmed Sutomo's room. A police search of his two-room bungalow turned up a collection of almost 6,000 videotapes, including child pornography, pornographic anime or hentai, and slasher films. The entire room was stacked with videotapes and manga, floor to ceiling, wall to wall. Interspersed among the content were video footage and pictures of his victims. The centerpieces of his collection were the first five guinea pig films. He apparently used the second film in the series as a template for one of his killings. The guinea pig films are highly controversial and are presented as snuff films. Miyazaki's crimes fueled a moral panic against the otaku culture and anime in Japan. Otaku culture is defined as a young person who is obsessed with computers or pop culture to the detriment of their social skills. Now caught, Miyazaki offered a grim confession of killing the four children. Miyazaki confessed to murdering Ayako Nomoto, whose skull was found in the hills of Okutama. The other confessions followed swiftly. First, the murder of Erika Namba, then Marikono, of whom films and clips were discovered among the 6,000 tapes in Miyazaki's lair. Miyazaki never showed an ounce of regret or empathy whatsoever. 
By mid-September, after a preliminary psychological test by NPA psychiatrists concluded that Miyazaki showed no immediately apparent disorders, he confessed to the fourth of the now-labeled otaku murders. After a few weeks of interrogation, the otaku killer would eventually make a full confession. His trial started on March 30, 1990. During his trial, he tried to blame his actions on his alias, Ratman. He also tried to blame it on the violence and sexual content found in some of his favorite animes. In 1989, he was convicted of the otaku murders. A team of psychologists examined him and found him responsible for his actions, although other examiners disagreed. Throughout the 1990s, Miyazaki remained incarcerated while Satima Prefecture put him through a battery of psychiatric evaluations. The public defender's office looked long and hard before finding two lawyers who were willing to take the case. One agreed only because of his vehement opposition to the death penalty. The defense's case revolves around the claim that Miyazaki has only limited sense of responsibility for his crimes that he is unable to choose between right and wrong. We want to build enough of a case for the judge to sentence Miyazaki to life in prison, said a defense attorney. The more we saw of him, the more we think he lives in a different world, said the defense. We felt the report did not establish Miyazaki's mental capabilities beyond reasonable doubt, so we asked for a second evaluation. Fortunately, the judge agreed, and a team of three Tokyo University professors began the evaluation of Miyazaki. It is very unusual for a team to evaluate a defendant, the defense added. Usually a single psychologist is used. The prosecution can appeal for another evaluation if it disagrees with the upcoming report. The defense cannot. There are three possible outcomes to the psychological evaluation. If the second report agrees that Miyazaki is mentally incompetent, he will be sent to a mental institution where, if precedent is followed, he'll be released in 12 or 13 years. However, public prosecutors, who have over 750 items of physical evidence, have no intention of letting Miyazaki loose. They will surely petition the court for a third testing and a fourth until, in theory, Miyazaki is as dead as his victims. The second possibility, the result the defense seeks, is that Miyazaki will be judged to have a limited sense of responsibility for his crimes. He may not have an incapacitating personality disorder such as paranoia or schizophrenia, but I think he'll be borderline. We hope the psychological team agrees. This defense thinks this result will earn Miyazaki a life sentence without parole. Professor Ishii expects the same psychological outcome, but believes Miyazaki's life sentence will, in effect, last about 12 to 15 years. It is impossible to say whether he will still be dangerous by then, said Ishii. However, keeping him in prison for the rest of his life raises other questions of human rights. The third possible outcome is that Miyazaki is deemed mentally competent enough to take full responsibility for his crimes. In this case, the judge would have no choice but to condemn him to death. Although the defense cannot appeal the psychological evaluation, it can and would appeal a death sentence. Nobody involved in the case doubts that Satomu Miyazaki is a very, very disturbed young man. Evaluator Dr. Oda lists a grab bag of obsessions, pedophilia, necrophilia, sadism, fetishism, and cannibalism. Professor Ishii believes Miyazaki was a pedophile first and a murderer second. Killing was an extension of his interest in little girls, a way of possessing them, he said. But is Miyazaki insane? I don't see how Miyazaki could be judged responsible for his actions, said Shinsuke Sirazawa. He shows no signs of being aware of the gravity of his crimes. He has no sense of guilt. Even the judge seems to agree that his first psychological testing was very inadequate, which is why a second testing was ordered. Although he strongly believes that Miyazaki should not be held criminally responsible for his deeds, defense attorney Sirozawa stresses that, 
it still would not do to let him loose in society. Miyazaki's other lawyer echoes this sentiment. The defense team will do its best to see that he gets life. But shortly thereafter, Miyazaki was sentenced to death by hanging. Following his son's conviction, Miyazaki's father, who had refused to pay for his legal defense, committed suicide by drowning himself in a river. When asked about his father's suicide, Miyazaki wrote a letter to a publisher, I feel refreshed. Miyazaki remained on death row for many years, appealing to have his sentence reduced to life imprisonment. A retrial was sought for the serial child killer. During closing arguments at the appellate trial of Tsutomu Miyazaki, who was sentenced to death by district and high courts for the murder of four girls in Tokyo and Saitima Prefecture between 1988 and 1989, the defense counsel called for a retrial at a high court and a re-examination of his mental competence at the time the crimes were committed. The prosecutors demanded the appeal be rejected. During closing remarks, the defense and prosecutors exchanged heated words over the defendant's mental state. A defense lawyer gave a detailed briefing on the medication Miyazaki received at the Tokyo Detention Center. She said that after an appeal was filed in 2001, inquiries she made to the center showed that starting in 2002, the center increased the quantity of psychotropic agent administered to Miyazaki to control auditory hallucinations. During an examination in 2002, Miyazaki told a doctor at the center he could hear a voice saying someone would tear his nails out, she said. According to the defense, Miyazaki said the voice was spoken by someone with a mysterious strength who was trying to attack him. What he hears has changed from single words to sentences. His condition is not improved with more medication. It's clear that he gradually became psychopathic since the time he committed the crimes, the defense said. In Western culture, it's pretty much accepted that if you attempt to cover up your crimes, you know what you did was wrong, and you can be held criminally liable. The Supreme Public Prosecutor's Office said Miyazaki had committed four crimes without leaving direct evidence. There was no evidence that he was mentally ill when he killed the girls, prosecutors said. With the Tokyo District Court basically accepting the charges against Miyazaki after the first trial, the rest of the 15 years of legal battles have focused on his competence. Results of psychological tests conducted during the first trial were divided. An extremely distorted personality, mental illness centering on multiple personality disorder, and schizophrenia. But the 1997 conclusion by a team of psychiatrists from Tokyo University was that Miyazaki, though suffering from multiple personality disorder and extreme schizophrenia, was still aware of the gravity and consequences of his crimes, and was therefore accountable for them. The results showed that Miyazaki had a complicated mental state, but the district court accepted the first result, determining Miyazaki was competent. The Tokyo High Court also upheld the district court's determination. The Supreme Court, where hearings are held only for arguments on constitutional and other major matters, essentially agreed with the lower court's decisions. At a press conference, after closing arguments, the defense said the situation was not favorable for Miyazaki. If the death sentence is upheld, another appeal is necessary, the defense said. In August 1988, Miyazaki strangled a four-year-old kindergartner after taking her to the forest by car. Between October 1988 and June 1989, he killed three girls aged four to seven in the suburbs of Tokyo. The murder shocked society as he sent parts of their remains and letters to the victims' families. The high court in Tokyo ruled that, although suffering from a multiple personality disorder, Miyazaki was able to distinguish right from wrong at the time of the crimes. Tsutomu Miyazaki was found mentally fit to stand trial and was judged guilty of killing all four girls. In a letter to Hiroyuki Shinoda, editor-in-chief of Sakura Monthly Magazine, with whom Miyazaki has corresponded for about ten years, Miyazaki said, I think I will be acquitted. I don't intend to apologize. 
The books Miyazaki requests are out-of-print comic books and articles about him. He sometimes asks people who write him for copies of stories he likes so that he can keep them, the source said. He also voiced fear of being hanged, the standard execution method in Japan, and requested instead American-style lethal injection. His life was essentially the same as when he committed the murders, spending his days reading manga and comic books and watching anime on a small television in his cell. On January 17, 2006, the Japanese Supreme Court of Justice upheld the original death sentence. Miyazaki's capture ignited a moral panic in Japan over otakus, a class of obsessive, technologically savvy loners that spend most of their time practicing complicated hobbies and shunning the rest of the world. In addition, Miyazaki's extensive slasher film collection contained the guinea pig films, a series known for its ultraviolent depiction of grisly deaths. But in an interesting cultural shift from the time of the murders were originally committed, the news reports of the decision upholding Miyazaki's sentence refer to him only as a child murderer, omitting all references to his hobbies and otaku culture. This can be seen as reflecting the changing attitudes in Japan towards otaku in general. I felt all alone, Miyazaki explained later, and whenever I saw a little girl playing on her own, it was almost like seeing myself. Miyazaki never displayed much concern for life. I've killed cats, he later said casually, threw one in the river, did another in boiling water. He also throttled his own dog to death with a strand of wire. His absorption in a video world, explains a psychologist, removed his consciousness from reality. Everything became an item to him, including people. The little girls he killed were no more than characters from his comic book life. Could the police have tracked down Miyazaki sooner? Until Miyazaki's arrest and subsequent confessions, the police were far from identifying the murderer, despite an intense and costly investigation. It's almost impossible to catch a murderer when there's no relationship between them and the victims, a police journalist explained. It becomes just a matter of luck. In Erica's case alone, more than 600 calls from the citizens of Hano kept the police occupied for days. But what if the National Police Agency had gotten involved sooner? Then, as when the FBI moves in, all information would have been immediately relayed from local police to a national center. The NPA would have also helped foot the mammoth bill for the manhunt. But the NPA's sphere of influence dictated that it could not get involved until an incident occurred inside the city limits of Tokyo. The NPA did set up a missing persons team after Ayako went missing in Tokyo, but this, according to an NPA source, does not constitute an investigation. The NPA's real involvement began only when Miyazaki started confessing. Miyazaki's father refused to hire a lawyer for his son. It wouldn't be fair to the victims, he said. He's perfectly happy, said the defense. He's allowed to read comic books all day. Yet the defense claimed Miyazaki barely registers the fact that people are staring at him. He hates that, said the defense. He's very self-conscious. Miyazaki lost his last death sentence penalty appeal in 2006. All that remains of the Itsukaichi house and printing plant complex is an open lot and the small two-room annex where Miyazaki slept among his teetering stacks of gruesome videotapes. In a 1989 interview with the Tokyo Shamboon, Katsumi Miyazaki regretted that I didn't pay more attention to the feelings of my son. After his arrest, Miyazaki had written a furious letter to his father, blaming him for everything. To his mother, however, Miyazaki was more conciliatory. Mother, I have caused you much heartache, he wrote once. Then he added, don't forget to change the oil in my car or it will get so you can't drive it. Minister of Defense Kunio Hatoyama signed his death warrant, and Miyazaki was hanged at the Tokyo Detention House on June 17, 2008. Miyazaki was among three death row inmates hanged the same day. 
With their execution, the number of inmates executed under the orders of Justice Minister Kunio Hatoyama came to 13. After careful deliberation, we executed three inmates today, Hatoyama said at a news conference. Miyazaki, detained at the Tokyo Detention House, was executed two years and four months after the Supreme Court finalized his death sentence in February 2006, which ended trials that had lasted 16 years. The top court said Miyazaki abducted and killed the four girls in Tokyo and neighboring Saitama Prefecture to satisfy his own sexual desire and appetite to own videotapes with footage of corpses. In a letter to Kyoto News just before the Supreme Court ruling, Miyazaki maintained his innocence and said he thought he did a good thing. During the nearly two-decade judicial process, Miyazaki never uttered a word of remorse to the victims and their families. He cryptically said that a rat man, a cartoonish image of which he drew, committed the crimes. Miyazaki's final words were, Please, tell the world that I am a gentle man. While I don't necessarily agree with executing someone with a severe mental illness, it's hard to argue that if anyone deserved the death penalty, it was Tsutomu Miyazaki. He murdered, sexually assaulted, ate, and mutilated four little girls. How could you tell the families of these girls he deserved a life sentence that could actually see him released back into society, especially given the fact he got to sit in his cell and read manga all day, which is how he spent his life anyway? at least before he unleashed himself to commit the string of grisly murders. The world is undoubtedly a better place without Tsutomu Miyazaki. So please, keep an eye on your children. It's hard to take some of their innocence away by warning them about the real monsters of the world, but it could be the difference between life and death. So that's the story of Tsutomu Miyazaki. If you like the show, give it a five-star rating and write a review and tell all of your friends and enemies about the show. You can email case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com and you can get a shout-out by doing so. Thanks again to Erica Kay from Spokane. Also, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Critique, where we discuss the paranormal and other topics. You can find it anywhere you find Exploring Evil. Sayonara.